This event was recorded live at the 2010 Edinburgh International Book Festival. It's a great pleasure to see a full tent, which was expected and has duly materialised for James, uh, who's such a wonderful writer, in whose work we're all so interested. And an enormous uh, pleasure to be able to introduce an event, which I hope will have a little bit of life to it. Not that it wasn't going to have life to it, but you know what I mean? With, because Jimmy Hutchison is here. Where, Jimmy, where are you? Oh, you're uh, there, there. Who's going to sing a couple of songs. Jimmy and I, funnily enough, James rang me up and said, we're going to have a couple of songs. There's a guy called Jimmy Hutchison. I said, Jimmy Hutchison. And um, little did he know that I was on the, the founding committee of the Keith Traditional Folk Festival. <laughs> in 1975, when he was a star performer, and he was telling me he was back there last year. Anyway, so I've known him for uh, longer than uh, we care to think about. So Jimmy's going to give us a couple of songs, and James is going to read um, a couple of extracts uh, from the book to give you all a flavour, because today is the launch day of the book. Uh, it's not been around. Most of you will not have seen it. Uh, I have. I've been through it. And it's a book that touches on things which I think we will all find extraordinarily interesting, moving, um, irritating, perceptive, thought-provoking. The title, incidentally, and the land lay still, and I think this is worth saying, comes from one of Eddie Morgan's sonnets from Scotland, which James reproduces on the uh, front piece of the book. Just give you a couple of sentences. The year was ending and the land lay still. Despite our countdown, we were loath to go, kept padding along the ridge, the broad glow of the city beneath us and the hill swirling with a little mist. That's the beginning of the sonnet. And I want to, before I ask James to read a passage from the book, just to ask a couple of questions about that. Because in some way, I mean, this book seems to me to be something which in some ways belies its title. Because you talk about stillness and settlement and calm. And the picture you present of 50s and 60s Scotland is one of a very, very strongly rooted community. But what the book is about, in the doings of all the characters and the various families who interact, is of turbulence and of uncertainty, and in the end, of a lack of resolution. Is that fair? Yes, I think Don't that is. Don't say no. <laughs> well, the book is about change. I mean, I think the, 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 the title tells you that there is underneath all the human change, the, the struggles and the, and the turbulence that you've described, there is a sort of a permanence and that is it, resident in the land, if you like. But yeah, th th it's a big period that is covered by the book and a lot of things happen between the 1950s and just a couple of years short of where we are now. Um, so there is masses of human change, social change, cultural change, political change. But yes, there is a sense at the end of the book that things are not yet resolved. Um, there, is, there is, although the book comes to an end, I, sus I would say there is no end to the story at that point. Is that um, a feeling that you have in your own mind about things, as distinct from a feeling that the characters may have? 
yes, because I think that's the nature of history and the nature of time. You know, you, and it's one of the things that actually comes up again and again in the book that that every time you think that a particular story is is ending, it isn't. It is it is either part of a bigger story or there is a sort of diversion into another story. So th there is never an end to to anything. And one of the themes of the book, I suppose, is how we look at past events. I mean, there's a lot of birth and some death in the book. Well, I mean, that happens if you're dealing with 50 or 60 years. But it, it is about the passage of time and how time, in a way, changes our view of events. Yeah, and also how we, our view of time changes as well. I mean, I, most of the events that are talked about in the book happened in my lifetime. Uh, and yet, even things that happened 20 years ago that I was part, part of or that I witnessed as an adult feel like ancient history. And I think that's really interesting, how, how rapidly the things that we thought belonged to us pass into, pass into something that is no longer with us, but I, past. I have to say, I, I never thought I'd read a novel in which the Pollock by-election of 1967 <laughs> would, be, would be resurrected. Um, but I mean, there it is. Uh, let me ask you just a technical question. Uh, you know, when you get technical about this as a writer, um, asking you as a writer, but it's interesting what you've threaded through the story which is a passionate story of people who are trying to find their identity, who are doing all sorts of things, who are finding themselves, who are, who are breaking up, coming together, all the things that human beings do. What you also do is you thread through the real story of what's happened in Scotland. You know, elections, for example. Now, it's quite tricky because you obviously feel that you have to tell people what happened in the 1974 election in February and then happened in <laughs> October. Um, and so you have to get the facts out there. How difficult was that, the so-called info dump? It's, it's a difficult balancing act, but it's, it, that's why I said it's interesting how one begins to think of things as history. It, it is a historical novel, and yet it's a historical novel that's happened in our, most of our lifetimes. Um, but it is quite difficult. I mean, I've written two or Did three books. Did you struggle books. with that? I think it's always a struggle to know how much factual detail you need to put in that isn't going to overbalance Especially it. when it's recent. Particularly when it's recent because people will dispute it. If you write, as I've written in the past with some of my other books about the 17th century mm, or 18th mm, century, mm, mm, nobody's going to argue no, with you too much about it. Because they want to be reminded, yes. But, uh, but when you talk about the, the 1967 election or the poll tax, people kind of go, ah, well that's not how it was, you know, in Linlithgow yes. or whatever. Yeah. Um, so there's always Lynn that Lynn danger. Linlithgow? Why are you saying <laughs> Linlithgow? I know Alex Salmon is a black bitch, but well, I mean... <laughs> I hope you get the detailed reference there. It's a very polite reference to somebody born in the boundaries of Linlithgow, as Tamdiel and Alex Salmon both were. What a pair. Anyway, never mind. Carry on. Well, there you are, though. I mean, Linlithgow, yes. obviously, was subconsciously there. It's Tamdiel, Alex Salmon. I mean, all of these characters who um, seem to loomed so large in my kind of political understanding of what been, what's been happening to Scotland over the last 30 or 40 years. Um, they are sort of in the backdrop of the story. They, they, you know, it's yes. not that they have um, no. walk-on parts, but they're there, and, it's, and they're there in the backdrop of all of our lives as well. I mean, one of the things that I think has happened to us as a, a community, a society, a nation, is that we've, we've, our, our identity has shifted dramatically because of the politics. Um, it seems to me that at the period when the book starts, the 1950s, that Scotland was probably as British as it was ever likely to be. We'd just come out of the Second World War. It seemed permanent, settled, unchanging. That, that united front against fascism, etc., etc. And yet, within 20 or 25 years, 
suddenly you have this other identity forcing itself to the surface because Britishness no longer seemed to work for a large percentage of the population. There's a wonderful uh, passage which runs for two or three pages quite early on in the book where you sum up uh, or give a, give a picture, give a feel of 1950s Scotland. It was the point at which I realize I'm slightly older than you. And you were doing this in, in recollection. I never thought, rather like a book that wouldn't mention the Pollock by-election, that um, there would never be a book with the McFlannels in it. Now, <laughs> you see, there's a, little, there's a little flicker of recognition and remembrance about the McFlannels. And this was, if you like, Gordon Brown's 50s, wasn't it? This is the Scotland that created uh, people who are vaguely in their 50s. Absolutely. And you're slightly younger than that. But, but you see that period, you know, of the, the, the Sunday Post years of the 50s, when, you know, 80% of the population read the Sunday Post. Um, and, uh, you know, Tom Nairn said famously afterwards, you know, Scotland will not be free until the last minister is strangled with the last copy of the Sunday Post. It's <laughs> slightly unfair, but and I mean, unfair on the Sunday Post recently. and unfair on Church of Scotland. Yes, well, he apologised more recently and said that he, he, he would... He'd gone over the top slightly. He'd gone over the top. But anyway, <laughs> uh, that's a very convoluted question. But, but you, to say the least, but you, uh, you present a picture of a Scotland that seemed unchanging, and then everything happened. Well, even when I was growing up in the 60s, I don't think, everybody thinks of the 60s as being the, the, the decade of massive change, but actually, as for many of us, I don't think the 60s were that different from the 50s. Um, I was looking at a photograph in the, in the, in the Guardian this morning of a, of a schoolboy in some floods in the south of England who had a, a schoolboy's cap and raincoat on, from the, and this was taken in the 19, 1933, and he looked exactly as I looked in 1967. Uh, you know, he had the same, the same gear on, and um, so in a sense, Things change more slowly than we think. Things change more slowly than we think. The the crucial decade for me, when the change really began to kick in, was the 70s. Um, I, I think that the, the, the 60s, in a sense, the 60s was the year that we now think of as the year of change. But actually, a lot of that stuff really didn't kick in until the early 70s. Let me ask you before I ask you to read a passage which you'll set up yourself and describe where we are in the book and and give it context. What was the spur that? Uh, produced this book. We've all, many of us in this room, I imagine, um, have read your previous work. Um, extraordinary stuff, and in different periods, uh, wonderfully lyrical, historical, uh, very pungent. What was it that produced the idea for this book? Where did it come from? I think it comes from, partly from my own experience in the 80s and 90s when I was more politically active than I am now, and when I was, I just got so angry at the fact that we seemed, as a as a as a society in Scotland, seemed to be wanting to push ourselves into a new place, a new a new way of of being, and we were being prevented from doing so. Were by you angrier with the people who, well, who you thought were trying to prevent it, or with? Scots themselves. Oh, I think it was an anger that went in all directions and, and still does to some extent um, because it seemed to me so clear that we wanted to go in a, a new direction and that various forces, some of them uh, held within ourselves, were preventing that. And yet, and, uh, I mean, the, the striking thing about the book is that you, one of the striking things about the book is that you conclude at the end that perhaps those forces within ourselves have not yet been resolved. Yeah, that's that, that's true, and I, because I think we're on a 
See, I see the journey that we're on, the political, cultural journey that Scotland is on as being one that is on a certain road and we're quite happy to be on that road, but we don't really know what the destination is. Is that a uh, bad thing? No, I don't think it's a bad thing at all. In fact, I think in the light of, 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 of changing circumstances, it's probably quite a good thing because mm. we need to revise our views of what kind of society we're moving towards. Um, well, we know the arc of prosperity no longer stretches above us, don't we? It doesn't appear to be quite so, no. so arc-like, does it? Yes. Um, but, you know, there have been previous dreams that have crumbled. You yeah. know, the, the socialist dream um, that so many of us have subscribed to seems to have um, crumbled, rather. And uh, now there's, there are other sort of visions of, of the kind of society we might be moving in towards uh, a green or more environmentally friendly. Or so it's a questing story. Yeah, and I think it's, 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 it's a quest that will go on. It's not, this is obviously not just pertinent or relevant to no. Scotland. It's something that is happening the world over, but there is a, a peculiar and particular story about Scotland that needs to be told, and that's really what I was trying to do. Well, let's get you to read a substantial uh, section from the beginning of the book, and I'd be grateful if you could uh, set the scene and explain, perhaps, uh, for those who won't have read the book, uh, why this matters. It touches on family, it touches on memory, touches on a particular place and a particular kind of Scotland. So let's, uh, let's hear it. Um, oops. So this, uh, this passage is very near the start of the book. And um, the book opens uh, with a character called Mike Pendreath. And the year is 2008. And um, Mike is a photographer and he lives alone on the north coast of Sutherland, right on the edge of Scotland, in his father Angus's old house. And uh, Angus was a photographer too, but a much more successful one than Mike has been. Angus died three years before, and Mike is in the process of sorting out his father's archive in preparation for a, a retrospective exhibition of his work which is going to take place in Edinburgh, and which does take place at the end of the book. So that's the kind of... Um, um, thing that, that, that uh, the, the arc of, of the book, as it were, it starts with him preparing for the exhibition and finishes with the exhibition. And in doing so, in looking through this archive, he's come across a photograph of himself and his father and his mother, Isabel, on a picnic. Um, and this has sparked a memory of a holiday that they had back in 1964, driving through the Highlands when he was nine years old and his parents' marriage was about to collapse. And um, it's... As, it's as he explains to his friend Murdo, probably the only photograph in existence of the three of them together. And the theme really in this little passage is about how time passes and when you look back at time you don't realise until you look back how rapidly um, things have moved on and how far you have come uh, from where you were before. So there is something else unique about this photograph, uh, apart from it being just about the, the only one of the three of them. It is almost certainly the only image in the entire Angus Pendrich archive not actually taken by Angus Pendrich. It shows the Pendrichs, Angus, Isabel and Michael, picnicking in the lee of what was then the future. That was how it felt and how Angus talked about it. He'd brought them there for that very purpose, to demonstrate his faith in better things to come. On that patch of thin grass above the beach, they could be witnesses to a new era. 30 yards one way, the blue-black sea filled the view as it always had done. In the other direction, cows grazed green fields bounded by stone slabs embedded in the earth. 
and beyond these was another strip of water, and then the giant golf ball of the Dunray atomic power plant. The future, the triumph of science, the harnessing of unimaginable might for the eternal benefit of mankind. Electricity so cheap you wouldn't be able to meter it. Angus wanted to believe all that and he wanted Isabel and Michael, it was always Michael then, to believe it with him. It should have been exciting and heartening on the second last day of a trip where almost everything had been new, at least in the sense that Michael had not previously experienced it. The wee car ferries, the twisting narrow roads with passing places, palm trees nurtured by the Gulf Stream. Further west, they'd found hairy cows sunbathing on beaches next to children chattering away in garlic. But now this was Caithness, and the weather had turned cloudy and cold. And regardless of whatever bounty the future might hold for mankind, as a family unit, the Pendrichs were heading for destruction. The only other pictures Mike has of Angus are ones he took himself, and none of these are from before 1970, the year he got his first real camera and made up his mind to be a photographer like his father. But since Angus was always the one behind the camera, he was always absent from the image. Here he is though, just as Mike remembers him from that summer holiday, tall, handsome, with thick, dishevelled, dark hair and a caddish smile, standing defiantly against the world and the weather. He's wearing light-coloured summery trousers and an open-necked, short-sleeved shirt, and he seems to find the wind bracing. His wife and son, on the other hand, crouched on a tartan rug on the grass in front of him, are obviously feeling frozen. The photograph is black and white, but somehow Angus looks ruddy and healthy, whereas Isabel and Michael are as grey as the sky. Isabel is in a stylish raincoat with the collar turned up, while Michael sports an unstylish green anorak with a fake fur-lined hood, although as a concession to the moment he has pushed the hood back from his face. Also, he's wearing shorts and sandals. Mike knows it's himself, but it doesn't feel like him. There's a basket on the rug beside Isabel, elements of a picnic scattered round it. All three of them are raising plastic mugs to the photographer, in a kind of grim toast to holiday fun. The photographer? A man who happened to be walking along the road at the time. Angus had already taken a couple of shots and then the man came by. Angus called out to him, would he mind taking their picture? He seemed not to hear at first, maybe it was the wind, but Angus bounded over and asked again. If the man said anything back, Michael didn't catch it. He was whip thin and yet somehow bulky, very upright, and he had a khaki pack slung over his shoulder. The face was brown and hard-looking. A scrape of beard on the cheeks, that was all. He was wearing a berry, so you couldn't see the colour of his hair, or indeed if he had any. But Michael thought that he looked quite old, and then that perhaps he wasn't much older than his father. The man listened patiently while Angus showed him how to work the camera. All he had to do was look through the viewfinder and press the button. But he did this before Angus was in position, and then it seemed he might have pressed something else by accident, and Angus had to go back and check it and then return. And all the time, Isabel and Michael were holding their pose in the cold, Isabel with her legs folded beneath her, one hand clutching her mug, and the other holding her hair off her face, and Michael on his hunkers a couple of feet away, feeling the pins and needles in the backs of his knees. And he heard Isabel say through clenched teeth, for God's sake, 
and somehow knew from the way she said it that it was over between his parents and that whatever this photograph was recording, it wasn't family happiness. And he wondered why on earth his father was going to all the trouble. For posterity, perhaps, is what he thinks now. Maybe Angus already knew he would shortly be leaving them. Mike studies his nine-year-old self. The white, hairless legs poking out beneath the anorak and shorts seem pathetically fragile. He studies his mother. She's 31, still a beautiful young woman, if only she'd smile a bit. But Isabel was never going to smile for this photograph. Just as the stranger holding the camera, Michael knew this instinctively, was not a man who was ever going to say, say cheese. And then it was done. And Angus thanked him and took the camera back. And that should have been the end of it. But it wasn't. The man lingered as if he expected something more than Angus's thanks. A tip, perhaps? Michael sensed his mother's rage simmering again. But it was the man who put his hand in his own pocket and drew something out. He stepped towards Michael with his clenched fist extended. And the boy automatically stood up and went towards him. Michael, Isabel said. But whatever the mystery was in that fist, he wanted it. He held out his hand and the man dropped something in it. And with a quick, fierce movement, closed Michael's fingers over it. The man's hand was rough and dry. Michael glanced up at him. His stare was intense and distant, as if he were looking both at and right through him. And then he let go and walked away without a word. He was separate again. He seemed separate from everything. A lonely figure hunched into the wind. And then he stopped and turned and stared at Michael again. And Angus must have seen the potential of that picture. The man in the road staring like a prophet. The cows, the light bouncing between the clouds and the sea. The looming Dunray dome. And he took it. The decisive moment, Cartier-Bresson called it. And what a great photograph it is. When Mike first came upon it, he immediately decided that it would have to be a late addition to the exhibition. But it's the other one, the not very good one of the family that he keeps going back to. As if somewhere in it there is a clue, advance notice how, how, of how everything was going to be. That was why he wanted to show it to Murdo, to say, look, this is where I come from. Do you think that wee boy ever imagined life turning out like this? When the man was 20 yards down the road, Michael opened his hand, and there in the palm was a pebble. That was all. A small, smooth, disappointing pebble about the size of a broad bean. It could have come from a beach, or a field, or a garden path, anywhere. Isabel demanded to know what it was, and Michael showed her, and she told him to throw it away. But he would not. And when she failed to appeal to his father for support, Michael slipped it into his pocket, where he kept it for days, feeling its inconsequential smoothness with his fingers and thinking about the man. Eventually he lost it, it was nothing, but the man had given it to him. And even now, when he thinks of the pebble, he remembers the intensity of the man's stare. They carried on with their picnic. In the basket was a thermos flask of Heinz tomato soup, heated up by their landlady of the previous night, and a bread wrapper full of cheese and ham sandwiches she'd also made for them. They drank the soup, dredged their way through the sandwiches. Angus paced around like an eccentric lecturer, firing information at them between bites and swallows. He was trying to explain how a fast reactor worked, how it produced more fuel than it consumed, converting uranium into plutonium, so in effect could go on making electricity forever. 
energy and perpetuity. He wanted to convince them of the significance of where they were, how their lives were linked to the power of the atom. But he was wasting his breath because Isabel and Michael were hardly listening. They were eating and drinking as fast as they could so they could pack up and move on so he could take them to John O'Groats where they'd get out and do whatever you were supposed to do at one end of the British Isles and after that drive on to the god-awful hotel or bed and breakfast he'd earmark them for, the, for them for the night where hopefully there'd be a hot bath and maybe even a fire. They didn't care a docker about nuclear fission and he probably didn't understand half of what he was trying to explain. They were all out of their respective depths. And so they packed up the picnic things and drove away from the wondrous white dome building, the white dome building perched on the edge of Scotland. And as they were going, Isabel said, that man was a tramp. What man? Angus said. The man who took the picture. No, Angus said, dismissive, but quite jovial at first. Surely not. Tramps have long straggly beards and ten overcoats and they smell. He didn't smell too bad. She sighed at his childishness. There was something about him. What? Michael could tell her sigh irritated his father. There was a tone to it and a tone to his short response. Two noises full of impatience and disrespect. I didn't like him giving that stupid stone to Michael. Oh, well, that's him then condemned and transported if you don't like him. Bloody vagrant handing out stones to kids. Anyway, what if he was a tramp? He scowled in the mirror. Michael, do you think he was a tramp? Michael said, well, his clothes weren't that dirty, but they were old looking. You see, Isabel said. His face looked like it was made of leather, Michael said, like he spent a lot of time out of doors. And I think he had quite a lot of clothes on, but he was very thin. You see, Isabel said again, so that Michael, who hated being on her side, had to add, but I don't think he was a tramp. Well, what was he then, Isabel snapped. I don't know. Maybe he was mad. Don't be ridiculous, Isabel said. The idea of insanity scared her more than vagrancy. Tramps don't go around handing out stones, Angus said. But I don't give a damn who or what he was. I asked him to do me a favour and he was kind enough to oblige. You're lucky he didn't drop your camera, Isabel said, or steal it. Angus muttered something Michael couldn't hear. If we pass him, don't offer him a lift. I might just do that, Angus said. One good turn deserves another. If he gets into this car, I'm getting out. Michael prayed fervently for them to pass the man just to see what happened. <laughs> but they didn't. A heavy, hateful emptiness gathered under the roof of the car. Michael slumped back, pulling the anorak hood up over his head, preferring the seashell effect of the fake fur against his ears to the dead silence that he was learning to recognise as the soundtrack of a marriage beyond repair. And in his pocket he felt for the pebble and wondered why the man had given it to him and what it might mean. Looking at the photograph brings it all back. It's like a still from a film of other people's lives. Michael and Mum and Dad. And they became Mike and Isabel and Angus, shifting uncertain identities. When he thinks about those shared lives, about human existence in general, he finds there is not much to put faith in. But this he knows for sure. Our ability to look back on the past, our need or desire to make sense of it, is both a blessing and a curse. And our inability to see into the future with any degree of accuracy is simultaneously the thing that saves us and the thing that condemns us.
Shammaye tram sandhokalats ye gatherers so blood. That trams the country run and run, come lesson in and I'll tell to you a roving tale O sights that I have seen Far up unto the snowy north And south by Gretna Green Now I've seen the high Benevus a tower until the moon. I've been by Kerif and Callender and sooth by Bonnie Doon. I've seen the nithy silvery tides and places to ken. Far up unto the snowy north Lies our Kurt's fairy glen. Of times I lach unto myself when trudging on the road. With my bag a blow upon my back, my face as brooms a toad. We lumps o' cake and tatty scones and cheese and braxy ham. No thinking in the morning at night where I'm to gang. Now I'm happy in the summertime beneath the clear blue sky no thinking in the morning at night where I've to lie in barn or byre or any where dozen out among the hay and if the weather does permit I'm happy every day. Now I'm often doomed by Galloway and round about Stranraer. My business tags me on anywhere I've travelled near and far. And all my days so roving, there's nothing that I lost. And all my days, my daily bread, and what'll pay my dose. But I think I'll gang to Paddy's land. I'm making up my mind For Scotland's greatly altered now And I cannot raise the wine But I will trust in providence Can providence prove through 
and I will sing O Aaron's Isle when I come back to you. Jimmy, that was great, and we'll hear from you before we conclude in uh, just under half an hour or so. Um, that was absolutely lovely. Scotland's gratefully altered new, which is, of course, in many ways, the theme of the book. I was very struck listening to you reading that passage um, again by the power of the, the giving of the pebble, this simple, meaningless gift. You seem to have a great feeling for the myth and the unknown that lies just under the surface. Yeah, um, and I don't really, this is when you get into this strange place of being an author and people say, well, what does this mean in your book? And you I say, deliberately <laughs> didn't ask you that for that reason. Alan Massey. There's probably no answer. There is no answer. Alan Massey, the, the, the uh, great contemporary Scottish novelist, said something a few years ago that struck home because it seemed to me so true. He said, very often when you finish writing a novel, it's not until sometime afterwards that you understand what it is that you've written. And uh, I find that all the time. And this, whatever this symbolism is of the stone, that this, this wandering man who because passes pebbles on. It's never explained in the book to any greater extent than it was explained in the passage you read. I mean, we don't, we don't learn anything else about there's no great secret in the pebble. No, there isn't. That is, that is what it was, that is what it is, that is what it remains after the book is read. Yeah, and I think that's something that runs through, through, the, through the book in many different ways. There are so many things that could be symbols of whatever. I mean, there's a lot of stones in the book. There's, you know, there's the stone of destiny and how it gets shifted around and all the stories well, the around that. The stone of destiny is incidentally a great element in the book. Well, I'll, I'll talk to you about the photograph in our growth in a minute. But, right. yeah. um, and photographs as well. Things sim there are symbols or things that could symbolise things all the way through the book. Um, but you recoil uh, from that. But 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 I don't want to. It's, you it's recoil not my, from it's not it. My, yeah, it's not my job to tell the reader what these things symbolise or what well, they mean. Come on. No, I don't think it, I, really, I genuinely. You, think, you no, put them in the book. Yes, but it's I a mean, two. It's a two-way. The Stone of Destiny turns <laughs> up. It's an event. I of, mean, course, of course it's an event. Whether it's the real one or one of the three and all the stuff you go into. But it's a, but it's a two-way, a book is a two-way mm. process. Mm. I write the book, other people hopefully read it. And although there are things that obviously I want people to, to take out of the book, um, to a large extent what people take out of the book is what they read out of it. And this book is so diverse and covers such a wide uh, amount of experience that in a sense it can be read in many different ways. So That's my excuse anyway. Well, it, yes, it's a pretty sort of, uh, I was going to say feeble excuse. It's not a feeble excuse, but it, it's a way out of the question. But to take the great Massey's point, um, when you finished this book, which is obviously not that long ago, so we haven't had time to sort of recollect it in tranquility, but uh, um, did you think afterwards that there was anything that you said that you didn't think you were saying at the time? <laughs> you see what I mean? Yes. Um, you raised the point. I did raise the point. Um, it's such a difficult question. I know this sounds so stupid, but it's a difficult question to answer. Um, 
I think there are things that I've said in this book that I will come back to in a few mm. months' time mm. and go, yeah, actually, there is. I, I don't think I'll come back and go, oh, I wish I hadn't put that in. But what I may no. come back to do and find is that there are things there that have a sort of resonance or a, or a deeper meaning that I wasn't fully conscious of when I was writing them. I think that happens all the time with, with people who are writing, that they write at, 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 a, they write at one level and then there are things going on underneath the surface. I want to raise a couple of things, and uh, you know, we're, we're all in difficulties in circumstances like this because I don't want to spoil the book for people. Uh, who are going to enjoy reading it, but I, don't, I, don't, I genuinely don't think these two things will spoil it. Um, I want to talk a little bit about Mike, who is a, is a gay man who finds himself in the course of the book, and that's, that's brought out in the very first period, and that's a, it's a very sort of moving um, thread through the book. The other thing, and you raised it yourself a moment ago, is the sown destiny. Now, there is a, a moment in the book where a photograph is taken in Arbroath Abbey, where else? Uh, when the thing is returned. And there is the question, is it the thing or a copy, and are there others, and all the rest of it. Um, but it's obviously something that you feel um, as a great sort of moment, I'm not using the word symbol, but something quite extraordinary. What is it that fascinates you about that story? Well, the moment, I think it was, that obviously happened before I, yes. some years before I was born. Um, but the moment of the removal of the stone from Westminster Abbey and then its uh, delivery back to Christmas 50 and 51, 51 the really fascinating thing about that is, is that it, it, is, it is a significant moment in, I think, in the, the uh, awakening of identity politics in Scotland. And in a sense, the stone is... I'm going to say something. Don't use the phrase neither here no, nor there because no, no. that would be well, unfortunate. I was going to say, in a sense, the stone is, is, is irrelevant in, mm. se in the sense of what it symbolises. The fact is that it, its removal from Westminster Abbey and then its reappearance was used as a, as a means mm. of, of firing up something that, wasn't, that was latent, that wasn't there. And uh, if you talk to. It was, you, it was a long time afterwards before things really, you know. It was, but I think that gap between 50-51 and then sort of sudden arrival of the SNP in the late 60s, th there is a sort of a, a latent thread that runs there. And if you talk to Ian Hamilton, the, the yeah, man who was one involved. of the people who was yeah. involved, he's very clear about that, that he, the reason that he felt that he needed to do that was because he felt that there was, that there needed to be an injection of something that, as it were, shook people out of whatever it was, the sort of complacency that they were in. I'm afraid I'm going to ask you a very um, straightforward question. You've gone into this, and you've talked to Ian Hamilton and others about this. Do you believe that the stone which is in, well, which is said to be the stone of destiny, is the stone of destiny? Or do you have reason to believe otherwise? I have, I have, I have, I have no reason to believe anything. I, I no, I don't. I, I think I, I find it. You think there's a lot of jiggery pokery about it? I think there's all kinds of jiggery pokery about that. I mean, in a sense, it's that's a diversion in a way. But I, of course I cannot, it is. But it's an interesting I cannot, one. I cannot believe that if this stone was so important that the monks of Schoon would have just handed it over to to Edward uh, Edward the First. Uh, so no, I. No, I'm talking about oh, what happened. Oh no, no, I'm not talking about that. No, I'm talking about whether the stone that was returned was the real one. Oh, that one. 
right. or whether <laughs> or whether somewhere in the bowels of some country church in Persia, deep underground, there is venerated by various people who go there the real one. Well. Now, that's an interesting story, isn't it? It is. Uh, I heard a story just the other day from a new neighbour about... Excellent. Just, Come on. I can't, no, no, I can't, I, I, I can't divulge the details of it, but I did hear a story about a, a mysterious break-in that removed something from an old castle um, just a few years ago. And, um, there might be a book in this. There might you know? be a book in it, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I don't know, Jim, we could get hung up on this for, 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 for weeks, probably. Um, yes. I, 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 I have no idea whether the stone that was returned to Arbroath was the one that was taken from Westminster. Um, maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. Actually, you see, what I think is so interesting is that by the time the stone, that stone, came back to Edinburgh in 1996, I think yeah, it was, yeah. I really do genuinely think by that stage it was irrelevant. Yes. And in it that was a symbol. Sense, the symbolism had gone. And, and the only right. people who thought it might still have significance were the people who were about to lose the election. Let me ask you one quick question. I just want to get a couple of questions from the audience. This has been so fascinating. I talked about Mike and his sexuality. And that's a, a theme. It doesn't dominate the book. But it's, uh, it's one of the things we're introduced to very early on. And it's a, a kind of discovery and a release. Is that how you see our story? in the last 50 years? Um, yes, but I wouldn't be so crass as to necessarily no, allow no. Uh, uh, to, 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 to sort no. of make a straight connection between no, no, pol no. political uh, self-discovery and, and no. sexual self-discovery. Um, but I do think, I mean, one of the things that has happened over the last 40, 50 yeah. years has been that uh, amazing ability to liberate ourselves from, from past strictures, moral, um, social strictures that, were, that, that seem to in, inhibit people from being who they were. And thank God that's gone, largely. Um, but I think it was also important for me in this book to, to, to have Mike, that character who finds his, finally finds his own sexuality and is happy with it, mm. uh, to have him moving with some confidence into whatever the future yeah. Scotland is. I think that's really important because, uh, you know, Scotland has changed in many ways, as so many other places have. It's changed in many ways. There's been loss, but there's also been a lot of gain in the change. And, you know, I think it's important to celebrate the good things that have changed as well as lament the, the things that we've lost. So Scotland's greatly altered do, as Jimmy sang a few minutes ago, but partly for the good and partly um, for maybe the not so good, and we'll hear from Jimmy in a moment. I just wonder if there are uh, two or three questions we can squeeze in um, before we have. Uh, James is going to read a little bit from later in the book before we close, and we'll we'll get another um, offering from Jimmy. Uh, anybody got a couple of just a couple of quick questions? Yes, somebody. Can I see? A, oh yeah, yeah. Hello. Do you, uh, there's a mic on its way as we speak. Just bear with us a second. It's at the, the far left on that row so can you assist by passing it along and then anyone else just stick up your hand and we hello <laughs> i was also interested in why um you decided to write this book and you said that it was fueled by your anger in the 80s and 90s so that leads me to a second question why now 
Why, why rate it now? Why not? Why rate it now? Oh. <laughs> Thank you for that good, pithy question. Uh, well, maybe, maybe a little time needs to pass um, before one can begin to get things into perspective. Uh, how, long, how long did it take to write? Uh, it's, taken, it's taken four years. I have, wasn't doing this exclusively, no, no, but, no, but it, no. I started writing it just over four years ago and it's taken that length of time. Um, why now, maybe, as I said, enough time had gone past for me to begin to get that into perspective. Um, obviously the politics of the story is important to me and uh, I think I needed a little time after the arrival of, of devolution in the Parliament to just kind of see what was going on there. Actually it became a, one of the reasons why the book, maybe I kept postponing writing the book was because the political landscape kept changing. Um, we had devolution and then you know, who would have expected that within, within eight years of that um, settlement that we would have a nationalist government um, at, in Edinburgh. And there were so many other things that shifted um, in that intervening period. So I think maybe I needed time to, to, to allow that, that political landscape to settle a bit before I wrote about what had happened in the lead up to that. Anyone else? Yeah, here. Just send it along the row. And then, was there a hand flying around up there? No, it's all right. Don't matter. Yeah. Looking forward to reading the book. I wondered how much you relied on your memory for events and how much research you undertook. Um, quite a good mixture of the two, I think. Um, there's some quite detailed stuff in there yeah, that you probably had to... Yeah. I had to go and double check. I mean, it's, it's actually yeah. amazing what, uh, what the, how much detail you retain sort of somewhere in the back of your head. But I'd, yeah, I had to sort of check various facts. Did you know well. the result of the Pollock by-election? <laughs> I, could, I, I, I couldn't have told you the exact number. No, no, no. Well, no, but, no um, but, um, but there was a sort of obsession, I think, in, uh, with, with, with by-election results in yeah, the 70s. Well. And, and, uh, and so they, they're still pretty, pretty firmly fixed in my, in my memory, actually. But uh, no, inevitably you go back and you, you have to double check your facts and so on. I mean, for me, the process of, of writing a, a historical work, um, and you know, I, bizarrely, I do think this is, a, in a way, is a historical novel, is that... It's not I, bizarre, it is a but, historical you know, novel. But, it, but it's not that long ago. No. You know, when does history stop or start? Um, anyway, I... <laughs> I, uh, what I, what the way I do is I tend to immerse myself in, 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 in huge amounts of information and then kind of come out of that and let it all drip off me and hopefully not leave too much of that clinging to the, to the, 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 the fictional text. Um, but uh, as, as we said at the start, that's always a slightly difficult balancing act. Well, and for those of you, most of you, who will still have to attack the book and get into it, there is some wonderful um, period description, uh, a feel of Scotland moving from the 50s into the 60s and, and through, which is extremely um, potent, I think, and, and, and very affecting. And I want to ask you to read another bit, shorter piece, I think, and then Jimmy will do a song which perhaps slightly unexpected uh, from him, uh, but it's, it's a rather splendid one. And you can set the scene okay. and then introduce Jimmy. I will do, yeah, okay. Um, well, I said at the uh, at the start of the session that uh, there's, a, there's an exhibition of Angus Pendry's photographs being planned, and this, in fact, takes place at the end of the book. And um, in this last section of the book, there's a gathering of, that includes many of the, the characters that um, that the reader will have met in the course of the of the book. And this takes place at the National Gallery of Photography. Um, which is a place, if you're wondering where it is, that doesn't actually exist, but ought to. 
Uh, it should actually um, be in the old Royal High School in Edinburgh, which is at the moment closed up and not being used for anything. So uh, this exhibition takes place there. And one of the characters uh, who attends it is a man now in his 80s who, uh, whose story uh, we've been following all the way through the book called Don Lenny. And Don um, is a veteran from the Second World War. He fought in the North African and the Italian campaigns. And when he was in Italy, he experienced one uh, far too close encounter with death, the memory of which has stayed with him ever since. And the reason that this passage is in the book and the reason why I asked Jimmy to, re to, to sing tonight is because there are, there are lots and lots of different stories in this book and there are lots and lots of songs and mentions of songs in the book. Song and story uh, are sort of part of the, th the, 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 the threads that hold the book together. And in many ways, this book is about absent people as much as those who are present. Um, there's a man who we've obliquely mentioned already who comes and goes as a kind of wandering man who hands out stones to people. Um, but there are other people who are absent. And in this passage, Don, um, in his 80s, is thinking about the men that he knew during the war, some of whom didn't make it home. And I'm just going to read this two or three paragraphs, and then I'm going to sit down and ask you to listen to Jimmy Hutchison sing a song that I'm sure many of you will know, which certainly usually ends up with me in tears at the end. It's a very, very moving and beautiful song. So Don has taken the opportunity to go to the gents because he's of a certain vintage and he needs to, to, to go. And he's down a corridor off the main lobby of the, uh, the gallery. He's alone. The place has a tiled coolness, a clean hush that pleases him. He, un he unbuttons and he waits. Typical. You feel you need to go, and then when you're standing at the ready, nothing happens. Patience, this is not a false alarm. The brain has sent the message all right. It's just that the messenger is old and doddery, and it takes a while to get down to the nether regions where the machinery is a bit decrepit and the operator's deaf. But he is on his way. And finally, finally, the trickle starts. And then I'll, there's a little ellipsis there. You don't need to know the details of, of what happens next. <laughs> There's a voice drifting towards him, very faint, a man's voice singing. He steps away from the urinal and the laser flush kicks in. He loves that. It knows better than you do when you're finished. He puts his fingers under the tap and hot water squirts out. Then when he takes his hand away, it stops. Fantastic. He grew up in a tenement in Drumkirk, sharing a toilet with five other families. Hot water for a tap? Aye, and the king came round for his tea on Thursdays. Back out in the corridor, the singing voice is stronger, beckoning him, and Don finds himself hurrying across the entrance lobby, back towards the big room where they're all gathered. A solitary, unaccompanied voice. He knows the tune, he knows the tune, and as he pushes through the doors, he knows the words. He can't believe somebody is singing this song while he's been in the lavi. It must be 40 years since he last heard it, maybe more. He stands there inside the door, slightly breathless, and the melody of Lily Marlene comes towards him. The singer is a burly, fine-looking character with snowy white hair and a moustache. <laughs> He's over there on the steps where the speeches were made, but the words are from another place. They're the words of all the men Don went through Italy with in 1944. He tries to join in, humming the tune, but the sound sticks in his throat, so he mouths the words instead. He has them as suddenly and effortlessly, effortlessly as if he sang them only this morning in the shower. 
but he never had a singing voice like this man's, slow and rich and gentle and glorious. <laughs> we are the Dede Dodgers out in Natali, always on the vino, always on the spree. Eighth Army scroungers and their ranks will live in Rome beside the Yanks. For we're the D-Day Dodgers in Sunday Italy. We landed in Caserno a holiday with pay. The Jerry's brought the bands out to greet us on the way. Gave us some cake and made us tea. We all sang songs, the beer was free. To welcome the D-Day Dodgers to sunny Italy. Naples and Casino, we took them in our stride. We didn't go to fight, boys, we just went for the ride. Anzio and Sangra, they're just names. We only went to look for dames, for we're the D-Day Dodgers in sunny Italy. Dear Lady Astor, you think you're something hot, standing up in Parliament and spouting Tommy Rot. Your England sweetheart and her pride, we think your mouth's too bloody wide. That's from the D-Day Dodgers in sunny Italy. Look along the hillside in the mud and rain. See the scattered crosses, there's some that have no name. Heartbreak and toil and suffering gone, the boys beneath them slumber on, for they're the D-Day Dodgers who stayed in Natalie. Jimmy, Jimmy, thank you very much. I've got a very treasured possession at home, which is a, a tape of Dennis Healy, who was a beach master at Anzio in the landings, singing that song, which I recorded on a, an old-fashioned tape recorder, with tears pouring down his face. It's very moving. We've had a very special hour. Uh, this is a book that takes us into our history, political history, our 
personal histories and wherever we stand on these questions. And it's one that I think makes us think. It's one that has a great deal of humour, a great deal of passion, a great deal of human sensibility in it. Uh, it's one that will make you think and one which I hope you will all enjoy. It's launched today. We're extremely grateful to the National Library of Scotland, a great institution which does exist, unlike the National <laughs> Gallery of Photography at the Royal High School, which doesn't, and which has been very generous in supporting uh, this event and the launch of the book. And it's my enormous pleasure to ask all of you to thank and salute Jimmy for entertaining us, Jimmy Hutchison, and above all, our author, our friend, James Roberts. Thank you very much. Lovely. Thank you very really much. Great. Thank you. Well done, Jimmy. That's fantastic. That's great. You're doing a book signing. Um, James is signing books in the tent, of course. Thank you all very much. Many more Edinburgh International Book Festival event recordings are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk along with a selection of videos.